Hello, and welcome back to the Afros and Knives podcast, the interview series featuring Black women working in food and beverage, wine, hospitality, food science, food tech, agriculture, food justice, and food media. I am your host, Tiffany Rozier, and this week's interview is with Halil Echohawk. She is a chef, an educator, and a member of the Pawnee Nation in Oklahoma. She is the force behind Birch Basket, a Seattle-based private chef and catering company that focuses on Pawnee cuisine, and we're talking indigenous-based pre-colonization, pre-Columbus. She is focused on reintroducing all of the healthy, sustainable, beautiful ingredients indigenous to North America. She is also a founding member of the I Collective, a group of native chefs, activists, writers, and more from across North America and Mexico, and they are focused on education about and the restoration of pre-colonial indigenous foodways. Hello has been featured on Independent Lenses' Alternative Kitchen on PBS. Bon Appetit! and Huffington Post, and a lot of other places. She is all over Obama's internet, y'all. So be sure to follow her work on Instagram at Birch Basket. Search her out, seek her out, find out where you can learn more about her and hear her story outside of this podcast, of course. And then go and support the work of the iCollective. You can visit the website, iCollectiveInc.org, and make a donation. And just be sure to share their story and let the world know that they're out there, let them know what the mission is, when we can be out in the streets and we are free to move about the country again in a safe way, I am sure they will have events that you can connect with and find out more about. And yeah, so just be sure to check out Hillel across the internet and support her work and amplify her voice. So let's jump into this interview. Hi, my name is Hillel Echohawk. I am a member of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma and adopted Upper Atna Athabaskan tribal in the interior of Alaska. And I am the owner and operator of Birch Basket Catering. I focus on traditional indigenous food of the Americas with a, a real focus on Pawnee food and Athabaskan foods because that's those are my my foods that I that I grew up with, and I do a lot of teaching. I do a lot of history. About half of what I do is like food history and history of Indigenous people and what colonialism has done to Native people from the beginning to now to where we are, and how food has played a, a part in all of that. And I have been a cook for about seven years now, I think. Um, kind of hard, it all kind of blurs together. I like yeah. to think, I think. Uh, <laughs> it's true, it does blur together at some point. It's like it's been one long like year and it's been actually a decade. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, like my first cooking job was a prep cook. And I honestly don't know when I started that job. It was like <laughs> forever ago. And <laughs> it sounds about right for this work. It really does sound good. <laughs> and, and then I started culinary school and I was a waitress and was, I, I, yeah, all sorts of restaurant jobs. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. The wild uh, yeah, and crazy. Yeah. 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 I don't think anyone can really escape working in food without like having touched 
all of those jobs at some uh-huh. point. You're just like, oh, so what else have you done? I'm like, if we're see, we've worked in the dish pit. I've been by bus tables. I mm-hmm. have like you just you touch all points, and mm-hmm. it sometimes it's obvious when someone hasn't. Oh, and yeah. you're like, maybe there's a benefit to that. <laughs> like, I would encourage you to cross train yourself in some other areas if you're working in a restaurant, because it just it gives you really different perspectives on at what point in the in the process that someone's touching the food. Mm-hmm. And it, it tells you like, OK, this is what they're responsible for. So it gives you a whole new appreciation for the end, for the process overall when you're looking at it from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Most definitely. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. Seven years. Wow. Before food, like before the, because seven years doesn't seem like a long time, but when you work in food, it's like dog years. So, yeah. Yeah. I just, I'm always like, oh, before I worked in food. And it's like, is there a before I worked in food? I'm like, but there was. It just seems like I've done this longer and I really haven't. Before you were in food, what were you, what were you doing? (laughs) I, well, I grew up in a very religious family, and so I was a missionary for two years. Cool. Yeah. Where? <laughs> I was based out of New Zealand. Oh, okay. And out of New Zealand, I went to Thailand, India, and Fiji okay. with this group called Youth with a Mission. And uh, at that point, I don't know if it still is, but it's the world's largest nonprofit missions organization. I think it still is. I, I mean, I'm not sure how like COVID has impacted any of those types of like in organizations yeah. at this point. But I think on last check, it actually still was. Yeah. Oh, you know, you know, yes, <laughs> you know, I, you, know I, you know, you'll find that within this community of, of folks that there's a lot of like those shared mm-hmm. historical points and like cultural mm-hmm. points is like, oh, I grew up in this particular type of space. And so depending on which church you went to or denomination you were in, you, you uh-huh. know, there's always some type of shared or cro- like some type of cross referencing of those particular things. So, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was so people like when they're like, you know about that? I'm like, you'd be so surprised <laughs> about the things I have experienced in my in my youth and in my young adulthood. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, wow. Oh, yeah. So what, what called to the transition for you? A couple of things. I had applied for a worker's visa to stay in New Zealand, but I was denied because I have epilepsy. And oh, okay. New Zealand has national health care and oh. they didn't want to pay for my medication. Gotcha. So I was like, well, I guess I will Won't be staying here. The States. <laughs> <laughs> and so I came back to the States and was like, well, I, you know, I've always wanted to go to, to culinary school. I've always wanted to cook for people. Even when I was doing missions, I was like always in the kitchen. I was... As, as much as it was allowed for me, I was feeding people. And so I went to culinary school and it took a while, of like prereqs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I knew that as a native woman, I knew that I was going to have to have the education yeah. to back it up. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, yep, that's another, <laughs> another shared experience. It's just like, oh, I have to have all this documentation to say mm-hmm. that I know what I know in order for uh-huh. you to even give me an opportunity. Uh-huh. And other folks don't tend to have to have those, don't have to jump those hurdles frequently. Right. <laughs> like, we, right. where did you end up going to culinary school? Here in Seattle, Seattle 
What is it? Culinary, culinary institution? Is it culinary they, they, institute? It's actually at a, uh, I can't remember the name of it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I know it's I've called that this year. I've deemed that exact moment in your brain where the information escapes. I've called that the trapdoor. Oh. And you're in the middle of a thought and such like a trapdoor opens up and the information you really need just falls out the bottom. We're <laughs> just like I putting it. <laughs> it's like oh it's like God. I can see the building. <laughs> that's it's the worst part. It's tormenting you because you're just like it's I can like, see the building. I, I know the names of these people. My memory is like, it's it's a blank spot in your memory. You're just like, why can't I recall that right now? I don't know what's wrong. It's going to come to me. It's fine. At some point when it comes to you and you shout it out, we'll understand exactly what that's for. (laughs) It'll make total sense for people. They're like, oh, that's what that is. Wow. That's hilarious. Because it's, I think that attitude or, yeah, that attitude of service, like that's connecting people from, all walks of life that have worked in other industries or have served in other places, kind of that's what calls to a lot of people when they get into food. It's like there's this sense of service and mm-hmm. generosity that you carry with you from where you were and you bring mm-hmm. that in with you. And it's like one of those spaces that you can, it highlights that and encourages that a lot more. And then for those of us who end up falling into like the teaching space, I think that is directly linked to like some of our history as far as like some of our cultural history. So whether you grew up in like a religious household or you grew up in a household where you had educators as parents or things like that, I think some of us fall into that category because we tend to, you know, when you're when you're working in missions, you tend to you tend to share your faith a lot. So you're in that process of constantly like teaching or sharing in a way that's mm-hmm. informative. And so that skill set just kind of carries over into the Mm -hmm. next space. So most times people are like, I don't understand how that made, how'd you make that connection between that career and that career? Just like, well, (laughs) there are some very weird things that like you, that people don't think about when you work in food professionally, that those skill sets that you have to call on and they don't think Mm -hmm. they belong there because they're like watching like Hell's Kitchen or something crazy. And you're just like, that's That's television, guys. That's not cooking. It's television. It's entertainment. And yeah. So, yeah, because like, I worked for a chef that worked for Chef Ramsey and, oh. you know, we had a chance to like talk about his work and like what they did together and that kind of thing and what he learned from Chef Ramsey. And he was like, well, unfortunately, like American TV really called on him to be a specific type of character on television. He's like, but he's so far from being that guy that it's weird to watch him sometimes. And you're like, that's interesting because I think people think that like shows like hell's kitchen are like genuinely like reality television and you're like not really that's like super produced and like almost like oh, there's yeah. a director and and people don't like really put it there and i'm like it's a competition show so it should be interesting but yeah like chef ramsey was that guy who like would fly home on sundays to have dinner with his family no matter where he was so that yeah, was that's he's who he is. Super family guy. <laughs> he's like super, and he's like, and he's super generous, and he loves to teach, and he wants to see people do well. And so that's why I was always like, people get the weirdest perceptions about food, but that's because they get all their information from like television and movies, and you're just like, oh, if you only knew, <laughs> if you mm-hmm. only knew. When you found yourself teaching more, was that like organic? Was it intentional? It was pretty organic because when I say like I focus on traditional indigenous foods people are like what does that mean what is traditional indigenous foods and so then like, oh, it's the three sisters 
corn, beans, and squash. It's sunflowers. It's 73% of the world's food comes from North, South, and Central America. If you take away what Lois Ellen Clark, who was the first Native chef to get a James Beard Award for her cookbook, which is so amazing. I think that's somebody who you should have on your because she's she's on the list. She's on the list. She is. Anybody has her, I'm like, if anybody has her email address or contact information. I do have her email like, address. You know, I'm like such please. a fangirl of hers. Please share. Okay. I will yeah. Um <laughs> that's how I get that's how I get people on the show, really. I'm just like, do you have that email address? How can I get connected to them? I have them on the list, but I don't know how to get to them. Oh yeah. Yeah, because she's so amazing. Oh my goodness. I'm like yeah. Can oh, you yeah. tell? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She needs to be here. We all, this is agreed on. We just need to figure out a way how to do it. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so she came up with a big eight and that is corn, beans, squash, vanilla, chocolate, potatoes, oh, and something else I'm forgetting. Oh, it's going to drive me nuts. <laughs> but the way that those food items have gone throughout the world and have changed the world. Oh, yeah. But people don't think of them as coming from, like, Native people. That's so... I guess because, like, the way I grew up, both of my grandmothers were educators. And so those were just... That was just part of their education. They were like, well, these are the foods Mm -hmm. that are indigenous to the Americas. And this is where those things came from. So they found their way into the rest of the world through these channels. And Mm -hmm. this is their home. And so I just never, it never occurred to me that other people did not know that information until like the last few years, especially corn, where there's been like those conversations around commodity corn and like large, like commercial farming and like how overplanting corn, soy and wheat have caused such agricultural upheaval Mm -hmm. for so many people and especially like smaller farmers you know people are like corn and I'm just like commercial corn commodity corn is used for so many things that are non-food applications Mm -hmm. and so when you're growing things in the ground that essentially end up being a non in a non-food application like you have to think about what you have destroyed in the process and like what happens to the native versions of those crops and of those Mm -hmm. plants so like having those conversations in the last few years and people are like oh i didn't know like north america Uh was the home of or south america was especially when we started talking about (laughs) because we had a conversation with another indigenous chef she's indigenous to peru and we talked about like things like quinoa and Mm -hmm. those particular types of grains and she was just Uh like all this the labeling of things as superfoods And the fact that most of those things are just indigenous crops to the Americas that people have been eating for thousands of years. And (laughs) and those crops 100, 200 years ago were burned so that the indigenous people couldn't eat. Right. I was like, food warfare is always like the first line of defense when it comes to like imperialism Mm -hmm. is like if we can cut off the food supply and it's an old school war tactic. That's one of the things that I talk about. I say that you look through history, look at any country that's being invaded. Yep. (laughs) One of the first things that they do is they take over the food supply. Yep. They attack your food supply or water supply. Yep. 
Yeah. It's like, because if they can starve you out or cause a drought or whatever it is, like, if you know, because they forget, like, people forget there's layers to that. If you have no water, then you can't water yourself or your crops or your mm-hmm. animals. So, in order mm-hmm. to destroy an entire, like, breed of animal, you have to do the same thing to them as you're doing to the people. You have to starve them and you have to, mm-hmm. um, you have to deprive them of water. So, yeah, it's been interesting to have, like, these talks with people and they're just like, I'm like, yeah. it just keeps like it's a resounding thing, like how little thought people give to their food. And such little just, thought. Just I'm like, so you're just chewing and swallowing. And I just don't <laughs> it's so it's so weird. I was like, it's one of the most like intimate acts you will ever mm-hmm. commit. And so like I was like, outside of sex, like when else are you going to actually ingest something or take something in? from another person mm-hmm. like physically like tangibly yeah. and so i'm like it's such a, a personal thing and i'm like how do you not have thoughts but i guess i mean i guess if you have like a if people don't have give thoughts to who they are intimate with i i can't imagine uh, why yeah. they would think about their food in a higher <laughs> a higher way or in a more <laughs> like separate way so yeah what were some of the first things you learned how to cook for yourself or for your family or for your community so I grew up in a really big family and my mom was always cooking. I feel like she was always cooking. And so I was always in the kitchen with her. And some of the first things I learned how to cook were eggs. And my mom's scrambled eggs and my dad's scrambled eggs were very different. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. And so I needed to, I learned how to make my mom scrambled eggs first and then my dad scrambled eggs. (laughs) (laughs) See what we got going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Because everybody likes their eggs just a little different. A little different. And you're just like, ooh, this is way different. All right, friends. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah. Because my dad's scrambled eggs are like so dry. (laughs) My mom's scrambled eggs are like more on what I like. Oh, like, <laughs> you know, you're more fluffy. fluffy. And, yeah. Mm, yeah. Dry scrambled eggs are so weird. Uh, yeah. Just like, what's this texture? I don't know what I'm eating right now. I know. Because <laughs> they're simultaneously like dry and they like weep at some point mm-hmm. because they're losing moisture from like all ends. You're like, how is yeah. this possible? <laughs> what have you I, done I, here? Yeah. It's like all of the proteins are just like completely just like, like okay. they're like, I'm done. I'm done. You've gone me too far and I can't live here anymore. You're just like, yeah. all right. This is not great. I guess because like on that list of eight, since eggs don't necessarily make the list, what's the the historical kind of like entry point for like eggs, indigenous cooking? So we we didn't have like chicken eggs, okay. um, but like duck eggs and and things like that, like wild okay. bird. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Cause some it's it's I'm always like, okay, so what birds do we leave alone? What birds do we like use the eggs? Cause I imagine like not everybody's out here cracking Robin's eggs to put into some butter in a saute pan. Um, right. <laughs> but it's like, you know, duck absolutely. In those common ingredients, like there's certain things that kind of cross borders and oceans. And so like eggs are one of those things, dumplings uh, and those types of things, like those particular additions to a meal so like when rice was introduced into europe through wow see tractor right there Uh friends 
right there yeah. through the moors of North Africa. And then you think about like the where rice kind of like runs everywhere at that point. But I think all cultures have something like rice in their diets. So whether you're using like a quinoa or a farro or any of those particular types of grains, mm-hmm. um, you find those commonalities across the board. So like when I started, when I started cooking and realizing like how frequently people use like quail's eggs and things of that nature, I was just like, oh, okay, so we're only getting like a part of the picture when it comes to just using these chicken eggs, guys. All right, mm-hmm. that's fine. The further along you go in that in your career and you realize the variety of, of things that you can get your hands on and then where those things come from and like, why aren't we using them with more frequency? And it's, you know, because it brings it back to that same conversation about like, land stewardship and like okay so let's Mm -hmm. stop planting let's stop planting wheat for a while maybe plant rye and the variety and the diversity in your foodways just kind of create a more robust and healthy foodway so yeah so i'm always curious about like so what kind of eggs are you guys eating over there (laughs) cracking the ostrich eggs what are you doing so for you're finding your culinary voice in this space. So, you know, cause you do have a number of folks like cooking from this particular viewpoint, from this point, from this viewpoint and dialing down, like what you resonate with, what you do well, like with the message you're trying to send through your food, where did you start to like develop that? And like, where are you sitting with that right now? And what are you really trying to say with what you do? I really started to develop this when I was in culinary school, like this is, I knew this is what I wanted to do. This is the focus that I wanted to do. And it was really apparent to me while I was in school that it was like not even a thought that my teachers were having, that my other classmates were having. And so it was like really frustrating for me that that was the case. Mm, (laughs) And I've always been the person who's like, if I'm frustrated, I'm going to let you know. And if you're wrong, I'm going to let you know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I'm serving you. I'm not serving you if I don't. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, And so, and I was not the best student. I was a really horrible student for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, probably because I was like, no, you guys are wrong. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is not going well for you all. This is incorrect. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a weird. Yeah. Yeah. Like culinary education is such a, a antiquated institution mm-hmm. at this point. I don't even know where to like, like, how do you unscramble that egg? <laughs> yeah. And this was like the education that I was getting was like, I feel like it was pretty progressive because we were learning, we were learning not just like French technique, we were learning all sorts of different techniques and styles. And this school has, it was one of the first schools to have its own greenhouse, It was which was like a huge selling point for me in the summer we would go around to like all of the different farms in Washington and just to like see like what was happening. We would go to plants and stuff. Like it was a very cool system. Just so it was like, you know, we're really getting, getting the feel of like farm to table, not just words, but the language 
mm. that they were using was very <laughs> antiquated. Okay. So it's like you you've managed to like do these things over here and mm-hmm. yet you're kind of just stuck in time over there. I just mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which of course speaks to like leadership and and the lack of like representation at that level, you know, because you, you know, you're like, okay, you had enough people thinking we need a greenhouse, we need to do some other things that are a little more innovative and like trendy because eventually this is where food's going to go. And then to not have anybody in the space to go, well, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, you have to talk about language and how we talk about food and not just what we cook. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, I can see that being a problem. And so I was always like, uh, <laughs> uh, uh. I'm like, raise your hand and say something, because if you don't, it just continues. And then eventually you're out of the class and the next group of people are like ambushed by really mm-hmm. poor information or terrible language or just, and then they continue mm-hmm. on these horrible traditions in their kitchens and at home and with other chefs that they're training and just like, and now you know how we end up where we are right now with these like toxic kitchen cultures and all the other things because mm-hmm. no one's raised their hand and said like, hey, how about we not think that's wrong? Mm-hmm. We should fix that. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's nothing like when the onus of that falls to like the lone black or brown person in the room. So you're just yeah. like... Like, oh, our job again great wonderful awesome okay that's fine yeah <laughs> did you find like after culinary school and like getting into work to lead with the the idea like I have indigenous roots and so I cook from that space was that a part of even those conversations like did you find yourself with an opportunity to really bring that to the table with jobs that you were getting or looking for yeah yeah I would always say like this is who I am it took me about two years to figure that out to figure out how to say that my first job out of out of school was like a crazy the chef was never there and it was like anything went (sighs) in this kitchen like it was one of those like it's wild kingdom in here friends it is. It is. is. Uh, it is. It's and it was like high volume and Oh, that's even worse. Yeah. And it was just like it was like craziness. You know you know those places. Yeah. And you're just like, all right, if I survive this, I'm getting out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like how do you expect someone to learn anything in that environment? I guess you don't. I guess the idea is like you're not here to learn, you're here to produce and Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got fast. <laughs> there you I go. Mean, I know it was a wood, but I started out on Garmo and then I moved up to grill and it's a wood fire grill. So I can do that. Oh. Like for crazy amounts. It's like a choose your own adventure kitchen there. You're like, all right, what do I want to learn? How can I move myself up the space? And here we are. And I'm just like. Okay. Yeah. Coming out of culinary school, you're like, okay, so this is kind of a DIY career thing. Cause based on this kitchen, if I don't figure it out, I'm not going to, mm-hmm. when Pretty you much. were, 
thinking about your own work and your own business after spending that time in like all, you know, kind of the pre-made kitchens, as I call them at this point, and like in other restaurants and things like that, that moment where you're like, okay, I need to do my own thing. Because a lot of people, you know, they exit the kind of the traditional trajectory because they're like, I'm not able to like find my voice here. I'm not able to move up the way I want to. Like they have those types of reasons to like get out. And so if you don't feel like who you are and how you grew up and how you grew up eating is something that can be like put out there through Mm -hmm. where you're working right now, a lot of people are like, well, I can't, I'm never going to be able to shine here. I'm never going to be able to use my own like culinary point of view here or cook the food that I'm passionate about. So at what point for you was kind of like that turning point where you're like, okay, it's time for me to like step out and and really take a risk and like do my own thing here. It kind of took a while. I was doing like smaller catering gigs on the side for different native nonprofits here. So I was like very unofficial. And then I was working at this one place called Damn the Weather, and which is a great place here, here in Seattle, Pioneer Square downtown. And it kind of got to the point of where I was doing like all of these things and being asked to do bigger events and just not having like the infrastructure. And so that's when I was like, oh, okay, you know, maybe I should, maybe I should start thinking about stepping it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. and, and then I ended up working at this one other place about two years later. I think I'm confusing my timeline. But I was asked to be part of, except I'm wearing this sweater. Um, <laughs> part of uh the i collective which oh, is okay. yeah which is a indigenous like cooks non-profit yes, yes. Um, I, mm-hmm. I have a i have a bit of a line in there from a, of a few folks they were like hey do you know about i collective you know about i collective because there's a couple oh. of uh, yeah there's a couple of other chefs that i'm connected to that are part of the organization so they were like do you know about i collective i'm like not yet i'm headed over to the website right oh. now so yeah um and it was one of those things where someone would when i was asking about like who should be on the podcast that was the first thing that most people were like go there go there go there yeah. so out short of like direct recommendations that was like the first place people kept sending me so like christina stanley was one one, another person I interviewed for like the Millie magazine spread that I did. So she was one that was pointing back to the eye collective. She is so great. Yeah. And then Britt Reed, she was another one that was like, hey, uh-huh. you should jump on the website and see who's there. Mm-hmm. And like those, any of those people are great to talk to. And so, yeah, that was, the, I got very familiar very quickly, the website and the and the work that everyone's doing. And so I just thought that was like, it was definitely a, a sign from the universe to like, this is a definitely a direction you need to go. And like, pe- mm-hmm. and, and this, these are conversations you absolutely need to start having because people should know specifically about like seed saving and things like that. Because again, it's a, it's a, it's a culturally shared activity. I mean, enslaved Africans came with different types of seeds in their hair because they didn't know where they were going and they needed to be able to, they didn't know if they were able to feed themselves. And so like this idea of keeping seeds because essentially we come from these agricultural 
communities. And so we Mm -hmm. think in a way that it's like, okay, so will we have, how are we feeding the next few generations and not just the one we're currently living in? So yeah, so the website was just like refreshing and a tonic in the world gone mad at this point. So yeah. Oh, yeah. So for Birch and Basket, like once you were kind of feet on the ground about it, what moves were you making to kind of get yourself out there in the world and get people familiar with the brand? Because I read your feature for Seattle. Is it Seattle Times? Am I Uh losing my mind there? Yeah. Which was a couple of years ago. And then where are you at now? And like, what are you looking for? It's hard to answer this question in the middle of like a worldwide pandemic. But I feel like if anyone is able to like think into the future, we have that capability. So before maybe your work was your business was rudely interrupted, where were you going? And like, what were your plans to build your business out? Yeah, before everything was came to a screeching halt. Yeah. Yeah. I was still working like a full time and a full time job and the business. I understand that life. (laughs) (laughs) And then about three weeks before the lockdown, I quit my job because I had enough work. (laughs) So wrong. Right. So sorry. (laughs) I was like, at this point, we can kind of find some humor in that, but it's just like, (laughs) that is so painful. Yeah. Yeah. And then within the first two weeks of March, all of my work for the whole year just got canceled. It was really, it was really awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you're really like, bad. I don't know what amount of smudging I need to do to fix this, but this <laughs> is not working for me. So we need a conversation with whoever's ancestors is responsible for this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have employees and like and like people on staff at that point? No. Okay. It was some smaller events that I could do. Okay. Like to goes and things like that. But like, I was just thankful that I hadn't ordered any food and stuff. Like, oh my god, yeah. Because then you'd really have yeah. to be like, okay, we're just going to turn the apartment or turn the house or turn the garage or turn someone else's house into like a small grocery store because mm-hmm. I have all this product I need to get rid of. And I am not going to do that on my own. Yeah, that's, it was such a weird moment because you didn't know how long things were going to last. And it was just like, do I proceed? Like it's going to be a two week hiccup and just kind of continue on as business as usual. Or do I like really do a full pause and just like, I don't know what this is going to end up being. So how about I not expend money? (laughs) Just planning for something that I'm not going to be able to use. Oh, man. Yeah, that's I don't think people understand like the the weight of that, especially when you are like I used to do like freelance catering. And so at some point you're just like you you create this calendar and this like book of business that kind of helps you Mm -hmm. get into, you know, six months from now, by the time the summer comes, I'll have this much in revenue and I can do these other things and to like see that completely just disappear. Mm -hmm. It was just like flames. (laughs) Just like, I don't even understand. And then people need to pivot. I'm like, do you understand what that means? Like, that means there has to be space for all these people who need to like move into like new directions. And there's Mm -hmm. not always space for everybody to do. So not everybody can like write for like a food magazine all of a sudden. Not everybody can become like a freelance food writer all of a sudden. Like Mm -hmm. the other places in food that don't necessarily require that type of service execution. There's not a ton of room for everybody. So like, I'm not going to become a food blogger all of a sudden 
in the middle of a worldwide pandemic because it's not like people will decide yeah. to start reading more all of a sudden yeah. either so, so it's like i don't know how successful that's gonna be i'm just gonna wait oh were you able to keep your other job no i had quit oh yeah see my brain forgot that so quickly because i was being super hopeful and optimistic um <laughs> so yeah she's like so i quit that job going i'm good now and then it's like <laughs> was that a food related job or were you kind of just like staying outside of the outside no, of the it was, space? I was working at a restaurant <sighs> yeah that's what happens people are like do you have a backup plan my backup plan is closed people <laughs> wow and they shut down because of covid <sighs> just oh okay that's just so yeah. mean <laughs> so mean. oh my gosh and that was like what last year in like march or april march march okay so from between like march and now like how has your life been <laughs> that's, that's yeah. such an odd question i ask people like so how are you doing and you're just like i'm not my head hasn't exploded but outside of that <laughs> It's been rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I moved in with my sister and her husband and their two kids. I've had like a lot, like I said, before yeah. I have epilepsy, my I've been having a lot of episodes. Oh. So that's the main reason why I moved in. Gotcha. Yeah. Because my doctor was like, you can't live by yourself anymore. <laughs> Oof. Oh, how has that like how has that affected your work over the last seven years? Like knowing like was that something that you took a pause on when you were like, okay, I'm getting out of like doing work in missions and like making this transition to food? Was that in your thought process? Like, okay, I can successfully like do this food thing. Oh yeah. With Absolutely. Cool. When I started culinary school, I knew that that my seizures were well enough under control that I was safe mm. and that the people around me were going to be safe. Okay. And so that, that was, was always like at least the, the year. The, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I think about like those particular factors, like for me, like I got into my first restaurant job, I had some challenges cause I was like, I was born with like, with people would say like bad feet, which I just never, as a young person, I didn't think about it. Like I knew I wasn't allowed to like be involved in like athletics. I had like a podiatrist by the time I was like three or four years old. I was wearing like custom orthotics by the time I was in like second grade. I had to like have a surgical procedure when I was first born, like first two weeks of my life, I had to have a surgical procedure to like surgically separate oh. my feet at the ankle and then they reconstructed my arch reconstructed my ankle and a lot of the a lot of the bones and wow. stuff in that space and so like I just grew up with like that's just kind of in the background it's just part of like my life and I have to kind of think about it sometimes because as a kid you don't think about that so you're just like yeah hey, that's all right but I didn't do a lot of like broken ankles and that kind of thing and it's probably because I didn't do like athletics because I was like not allowed but I'd never thought about having a job where I was on my feet all the time. So it wasn't mm -hmm. something I factored in. And so when I made the transition into food, it still didn't like hit me that I would like be on my feet for like 18, 19 hours a day. It did, just mm -hmm. didn't occur to me. And so like my very first restaurant job was in New York. And I think I came into work one. I woke up one morning and my ankle was completely swollen. Like I had broken it and I just, it oh. looked 
terrible. And I was like, what is wrong with this foot? But like the chefs that we are, we wrap it up, uh-huh. stick a Band-Aid on it and go to work. And so yeah. I kind of like wrapped my foot up with like an ace bandage and put my shoes on and got on the train and went to work. And so eventually the chef I was working for noticed it because he looked down yeah. and he saw like he saw me with my shoes on and he's just like, what's wrong with your ankle? And I'm like, because uh, it didn't hurt there was no pain it was just swelling I was like I don't know I woke up and it looked like that this morning and he's like do you need to go to the hospital <laughs> he was very panicked <laughs> and I it was, thought it was very sweet and I'm like no I don't think I need to go to the hospital I don't it's not broken it's just swollen so maybe it's just like some edema or something like that in your foot <gasps> so it took about a week for it to go away and it went away and it didn't return for probably like two and a half years so I thought maybe there was uh-huh. just like a pulled tendon or something weird some inflammation and so I ended up working at a hotel like managing a hotel for I don't know how I ended up in that job from that place but I ended up managing a property and so I had to wear like heels every day. I was again mm. on my feet every day. Like I was right. I was doing housekeeping, like flipping mattresses and stuff and heels. Mm-hmm. And everything. I was a psycho. And so I was like, okay. And some point I woke up and my foot was swollen again. And I was like, so I go to like urgent care. They did an x-ray. All the bones were sound. And this orthopedic surgeon who I guess was doing a rotation, he showed up and the guy, the doctor who x-rayed my foot was like, I'm going to have him look at it just to see what's going on here. And so he Mm -hmm. takes this very quick peripheral look at it. And he's like, it looks like you have some injury to this tendon right here. And so he points it out and I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Like I was born kind of with these foot challenges. So he's like, yeah, so you probably need to in, you know, in the very near future, go see a podiatrist or an orthopedic surgeon. I'm like, all right. And I just put it to the, shoved it to the back of my mind. They gave me some crutches and I proceeded to just go back to work like a crazy person. Cause that's what you do. So it took quite a few years but finally like those chronic issues returned and about four years ago I was just like my foot was progressively being in more and more and more and more pain and so I had like at one point I woke up and I could not put any weight on either foot which made the morning really interesting and so eventually like immediately panic call like my doctor and he's like you need to see a podiatrist so like long story short my podiatrist was like so what do you do for a living and I'm like I'm a chef and he just kind of looked at me like you need to make some new career choices and I was just like (laughs) so now when I talk to people who have worked in food and who have any type of like physical challenge that could possibly impair or impede or interrupt like the I always have to think about how are you managing that because I know like I knew for me like I think I got one more year out of like physically being in a kitchen and then at that point my podiatrist was like you can either stop what you're doing or you'll have to have surgery and that'll take you off of your feet for three years anyway and yeah whoa so I was just like, okay, so we're at that point. It's that serious. And so like now when I look at people, I'm just like, you know, whenever someone's like, yeah, you know, I, I go to work with this particular challenge in mind. And they're like, people are like, you don't think about it. I'm like, you don't because you're, you're in the food, you're in the work and you're not necessarily mm-hmm. thinking about how something could stop you from doing that. If anything, you're thinking about, okay, what are the solutions if I have problems, if I have trouble and, and then you just keep, you just keep working. So yes, I, I appreciate that information, like for you sharing that. I know like, oh, so medical stuff is always like a weird thing to talk about if someone's not comfortable and you just never know where people are. You can never gauge the temperature on something like that. Some people are like, I don't want to talk about it. And other people are like, I want to talk about it all the time. And you're like, okay, um, 
sure chat about it like whatever you want to say but i i kind of thought like some people who are you know essentially working in under the some of the same like physical conditions because the work in the kitchen is stressful and if you do mm-hmm. have like conditions that are exacerbated by stress then it's like how are people managing how are people doing their work and and making progress and managing those things in their lives as well so that's my two cents. So you're living with your sister and her husband. You're living with your with the kids. <laughs> your doctor's yeah. like, you don't need to live alone anymore. So yeah. what does work look like for you right now? Or even are you even thinking about work at this point? I am always thinking about work. Mm, yeah. I, yeah. I can't not. <laughs> it's like it's like it's tied um, to my identity on some level. So yeah. 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 I am uh, constantly doing something whether it's just a day of emails or it's something like this or like I said I work with a lot of the nonprofit, the native nonprofits here and so I do a lot of like it's an example so for the Urban Indian Health Institute here in Seattle I do a lot of like little things for them like I created like a soup packet that they send out when they were doing like in-person events, like tabling and things, they would hand it out. But now they're like sending it out in like raffles and things like that. My sister who I live with, she's the executive director of the Chief Seattle Club, which is the native day homeless shelter. Okay. So I am working with them to do a cafe. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's yeah. it's going to be really cool. Sweet. Somebody is donating farm property. It's, it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we're working on that. Great. Yeah, and it's like a lot of like little... Little seeds of things that are like going to grow into something cool. Great. Eventually. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think that's yeah. where a lot of people are. They're like, I have a lot of seeds in the ground at the moment. I'm just waiting mm-hmm. to see what happens when they like germinate and grow and become fruitful because yeah. some seeds will definitely like jump off like so much faster than others. And then other things are just like, I'm in the wait and mm-hmm. see right now. Yeah. So, yeah, but I'm like, that's so great though. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's like things that we need to be doing are finding us in the middle of like a global pause, which I could only hope we walk away from it with something. I hope people just don't waste the moment it feels like it could be it could be squandered really easily especially complaining or like not having like having zero perspective about it but I feel like in mm-hmm. in this way we have a really interesting way to not just pause on our own it's like the collective pause is really what's interesting to me and like having to rethink how we work why we work who we work with how we communicate our relationship to work in general, like work and labor and, and all those things. So like, I think this is a great moment to have those internal conversations and external conversations and like walk away with what do we do when we're all able to occupy spaces together again? How do we engage in work in a way that's more beneficial and productive and healthy and, and all of those things on the other side of this? So yeah, so I'm excited to hear and see and like keep an eye on the on the seeds. You mentioned organizations that you work with. What organizations should we be paying attention to, following, elevating, spotlighting, giving to? What are some that are like close to your heart that definitely need a lot of support right now, specifically right now when like giving is like slowed down for so many? 
I Collective. Yeah. yeah, we are doing a lot of really cool things, but we are just slowed down because we just don't have the money for it. Okay. Yeah, it's all a volunteer basis. Like, I don't get paid for any of the stuff that I do for iCollective. And so it's hard to, like, get the stuff that we want to do off the ground simply because we don't have the yeah the money to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The financial like resources. Do, yeah. How, yeah. Who knew we needed capital in order to exist in capital? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I work, like, probably... 15 20 hours a week for free on iCollective stuff so yeah. it's like and that's pretty average for us yeah yeah i was gonna say like that nonprofit scenario like right now people are just burning more labor than they're able to get compensated mm-hmm. for and it's just like there's got to be a better yeah. way it's got to be a better way to support people because like i know for me like i don't mind volunteering to do things but i know there's a point where you kind of like cross the threshold and you're just like okay ooh. yeah I'm going to spend this much time. All right. We need to think about how this value exchange is working. So, yeah. So yeah. iCollective, any indigenous women's based organizations? It's mostly the Pawnee Seed Preservation Project. Okay. When the Pawnees were moved to Oklahoma from Kansas in 1875, we lost a ton of our seeds. And I mean, like like 80% of our seeds. Wow. Yeah. And we lost in the 1910 census, there were 696 Pawnees when in 1875, there was about 30,000. So that little campaign worked of theirs. Uh Uh-huh. So about 15 years ago, my aunt Deb Echohawk, along with Bonnie, I'm forgetting her last name, a woman from Nebraska, they started to look for Pawnee seeds and they started the Pawnee Seed Preservation Project. And farmers from traditional lands in Pawnee have donated and are growing traditional seeds in the traditional way not using any like modern anything and it's just like this beautiful beautiful thing and all of these seeds are coming back seeds that we thought were lost forever Mm. they're just coming back naturally because they know they know yeah yeah it's like it's time friends it's time Uh (laughs) uh-huh yeah 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 cool It's okay, like, awesome. So, yeah, Pawnee so. Seed Preservation Project. I've got I Collective. Okay. So, yeah, because I always like to try to like boost other organizations that like a lot of the women I interview spend a lot of work and in, in time like investing in. And I just want other people to like, hey, these organizations are out here doing the kind of work that lasts longer than a single generation and that carry that level of weight and importance. And so I think other people, you know, people kind of get confused about wasting money on weird things. And it's like, you know what, how about you dedicate a little of that coinage 
to something useful. Mm-hmm. So just finding places for people to do that, that I know that the work is getting done and that, you know, your dollars are not being like squandered and they're not just sitting there waiting for some application. It's just like, you know, work is currently happening that needs financial support. And so like, you know, if you donate something, it's going somewhere. It has a job, the money you donate to places. And so, yeah, so that's why I'm always like, who else can we point out? Who else can we shine some light on so that that way they get what they need? So the hour goes by so fast. (laughs) So how can people, how can we like support you? Like, where can we find your stuff? Are there types of projects you're looking for that you want to like get into? And where can we find you on like in the social media space? Because I know some people have social media, but aren't necessarily active on social media, which is a completely fair thing. So what's the best way to kind of like just keep, essentially keep tabs on you just so we know exactly like what to support you in and like when you're able to leave the house again like the rest of us like what kind of work can we kind of so we can follow you and see where you're headed after we get out of this madness Uh yeah go follow me on instagram facebook twitter i'm very rarely on twitter it confuses me Uh, it's just too much twitter is too much (laughs) i have a website okay website is birchbasketcatering.com and then all of my other social media is birch basket okay perfect well thank you so much for hopping on here and chatting with me for a little while and that is all for today's episode. This has been the Afros and Knives podcast with Tiffany Rozier. And I want to extend a huge thank you to my guests this week and to you, the audience, for tuning in. I love this community of listeners and I am so grateful for your support. If you love this podcast, you can show your support by subscribing, sharing and rating this podcast wherever you listen. I mean, how many times can I say podcasts? Just rate the show wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Luminary, all, I think we're on 11 platforms now. One thing I would love to see this season is for folks to leave comments on the episode pages on the website. So be sure to visit the Afros and Ives website, which is afrosandives.com. And when you're there, you can become a member, you can sign up for the newsletter, and you can leave comments for my guests and for myself on their interview pages. If you've never been to the website before, each interview has a page that's dedicated to it. It features our guests. It gives you more information about who they are, maybe their product or service or organization and how you can get connected. So there's just a lot more information there for after the show. And so I encourage you to check out the website and get engaged a bit there because there's just so much more to offer and a lot more value that can be added to the podcast. You can also watch all of the interviews that are in video on the website as well. There is a dedicated video channel on Vimeo, but it's definitely a lot easier to just jump on the website and watch the podcast happen. Like I said, be sure to sign up for the newsletter. It'll let you know who's going to be on the show. It will also feature their five minute interview. If you don't know about the five minute interview, again, go to the website. It'll tell you all about it. If you would like to participate in the five minute interview, that's where you can sign up for that as well. So yeah, thank you so much for listening in this week. I hope you found it valuable and interesting. And as I continue to bring these episodes, definitely 
find me on Instagram at Afros and Ives. And if you want to nominate someone for the show, if you want to reach out and ask about how to be on the show yourself, that is definitely a place to do it. So yeah, so take care of yourselves. And until next week, may you be happy. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be at peace. Peace.